story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to the Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Pietsche. And I'm Soren Rierigard. We're back for another week. You can follow us, as always, on social media. We're at facebook.com slash thereaderskaramazov. We're on Twitter at thereadersk. And you can go sign up for our Patreon, patreon.com slash thereaderskaramazov, if you want extra goodies. We're recording a bonus pod right after this one. That's tied in somehow, so we'll get to that. This week we are discussing, going back in time, like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and discussing Euripides the Bacchae, one of, I think, the best Greek tragedies. This was my pick this week. And we'll be talking about it, but first I wanted to bring up something very special, which is in honor of the Bacchae, which is a play about Dionysus, the god of wine. We're kicking back a little bit today. Usually I stick to tea while we're recording these, but we're letting loose a little bit, so wanted to let everybody introduce their own beverages that are lubricating the wheels around here tonight. <laughs> Carl, what are you drinking? I just went with one of my go-tos, which is just whiskey and coffee, just the straight-up Irish coffee, even though it's not very Greek of me. <laughs> that's what I had, and that's what I'm going with. Friedrich? I'm mixing it up, and I'm going back to basics, because I'm being basic with my rosé, which is the Commandery de la Bargemon. I got it on sale at the wine store down the street, and it's from Provence in France. And uh, interestingly enough, I noticed that there was a Templar cross on the cork, so I read the description, which I didn't before buying it. And apparently this vineyard was founded in the 13th century by Templar knights. And we're not reading anything that has to do with that, but eventually we'll get to stuff like that, I'm sure. I love it. Well, you're the only one of us who's actually honoring the god of the grape tonight. Like Carl, I'm I'm on the, the harder stuff as well. I'm drinking a little bit of Old Forester 100 proof. Ooh. Maybe appropriate since, since part of our play takes place in the forest. Hopefully this will loosen our tongues a little bit. Not, not that we need it. So let's start talking about the Bacchae. As always, I'm going to give a brief plot description, and then we'll kind of launch into what's going on in this play, what makes it work, and what makes it an interesting pick for our pod on philosophy and literature. So the Bacchae is one of the plays of the, the late Greek playwright Euripides. He's the last of the three great Greek playwrights. The Bacchae tells the story of Dionysus, the god of wine, who comes back to his hometown of Thebes. And he had been sort of run out of Thebes because his mother, Semele, had been impregnated by Zeus, as you do when you're a woman in ancient Greece, and nobody believed her. And they said, no, 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 you're just, you're making this up. And so she died. He was sent away. And now he's back. uh, And he's back with a vengeance. And so he comes into town to try to wreak havoc on the people of Thebes and make them bend the knee to him as a god. In doing so, he encounters his cousin Pentheus, who's now the king of Thebes. And Pentheus refuses to recognize Dionysus as a god. Dionysus comes in disguised in sort of a meta trick as a priest of Dionysus and... Pentheus says, no way, I'm not worshiping this god. He's not part of our city's 
Pantheon, get out of here. A conflict ensues, a struggle ensues between them. By the end of the play, what's happened is that Dionysus has tricked Pentheus and gotten him to dress up like a woman and go out into the forest and observe the ravings of the Maenads, who are these women who follow Dionysus. They do so by engaging in wholesome activities like tearing apart squirrels, <laughs> um, having drunken orgies, that sort of thing. Pentheus goes out to observe them, and there's a little bit of like a weird voyeuristic sexual quality about this. But then they discover him, and he is torn to pieces. They think he's a lion, and they tear him to pieces. And his own mother, Agave, brings back his head into the city and says, Hey, I killed a lion. This is wonderful. And then she finally realizes, oh, shit, this is my son's head here. I mean, that's the play. So... It's a very strange play, even by the standards of Greek tragedy, but I think that there's a lot going on that's really worth unpacking in this play. And so the, the reason I chose it is that I want to be able to think a little bit about where lines get blurry, lines between religious ecstasy and madness and drunkenness and sobriety. All sorts of lines are getting crossed here over the course of the play. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk about some of those divisions and the way that those break down over the course of the play. But first, I'm interested to know what you all thought reading through. This is maybe the first time for, for some of you reading it. Carl, what did you make of all of all of this? I would have to say my strongest impression was just how removed it felt from a, a modern drama where... I feel some sort of closeness to the character's motivations, and I can kind of situate myself within their motivations. The god's presence in the play is so um, stark and well-defined. It, it makes me think of one of the hallmark divisions between classical and modern periods, a steadfast belief in tradition. Tradition for tradition's sake is sometimes, to me, if it's not a tradition I've personally been familiar with as it as it's not in this play my sort of modern mores make me think well why why simply believe the gods why simply have piety for piety's sake in this play so it's kind of alienating that's great carl in part because that is actually i think one of the questions the play is, itself is asking in the in the character of pentheus so we'll get to that in a little bit but i think you're right to note in some ways, this play feels very distant from us in some of the things that it values. Friedrich? I am coming to Euripides as a reader of Sophocles and not many other Greek tragedies. And so for me, I, I'm like Carl, a little surprised by the sort of lack of an Antigone-like character who is maybe defiant in some way or is challenging the social conditions that she's in by promoting a greater ethics or something. And yet at the same time, I kind of knew what to expect because I'd read about Euripides without actually having read Euripides. And so I was ready for this sort of flawed character to emerge and for them to be placed in front of a trap and told, don't, don't touch the trap, and then to watch them touch the trap and meet their demise. And what drew me into that story, I mean, there's a lot of complications that are very modern, questions about uh, how you worship or questions about sexual politics in society. But what drew me in is the same thing that drew me into our movie pod later, which is that it's a story about dealing with this fate that's going to happen to you. And the narrative arc that we're familiar with as readers of modern novels isn't present here. It's more of just downward trending spiral. Is, is Medea Euripides or no? Yes, Medea's your Okay, yeah, as well. so I was thinking Medea I don't feel this like alienation with because I think it's just the nature of the ending. Because it's so telegraphed, this ending seems like it's just 
bound to happen from the beginning. Whereas in Medea, I feel like, whoa, invested in this like rising up at the end, even though it's like a kind of deus ex machina ending as well with like the dragon and the rising out of the circumstances, the rising out of the predicament. Something about the fadedness of this felt sort of like hard determinist, like from the get-go we knew there were only a certain amount of lines until this was coming. And that kind of doom feeling to me feels entirely foreign. It's worth, you know, bringing up in this context so much I think about the the way that we tend to think about Greek tragedy comes to us through Aristotle's poetics and in that book, Aristotle very deliberately chooses, I think, what he thinks is the perfect play, which is Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, and gives us those sort of categories. Whether he intends actually to make categories out of them or not is maybe an interesting question, but they've certainly been interpreted as these categories for understanding Greek tragedy that work really well for interpreting Oedipus Rex, I think, in a lot of ways, but fail pretty badly in a lot of ways, trying to think about the Bacchae. And you're right, Carl, I think especially the very off-putting thing about this play, maybe to modern sensibilities, is how hard determinist it seems. Dionysus comes in, he says, I'm going to F up Thebes. And then he does it, <laughs> and that's the play. And there does seem to be an inescapability about the power of the god, which is something we'll get into in a little bit, which raises some troubling questions for us as people who like to think about ethics and living life. If you can't escape what's happening, then then what are you supposed to do about it? And that's very troubling to the modern sensibility. We'll, we'll talk about that as we, as we get going along. It's interesting that Dionysus, too, is the god of, as they repeatedly say throughout the play, the god of, like, the only escape you have from suffering mm -hmm. in that time or, or in that, in certain senses. That that's why they worship Dionysus. He brought us the thing that gives us peace when we have nothing else to turn to, alcohol. And for that, he is worthy of praise. And yet this whole play is, is about, like, your inability to escape the ultimate suffering that's coming to you. And I kept thinking about it in those terms. How is... Pentheus like making some mistake in finding the Bacchic in life right or the or the Nietzschean Dionysian or something but I don't really think it is about that and yeah what you're talking about Friedrich reminds me of Beckett's Endgame which has that like hard determinist feel to it in a way too but there's that modern play going on on the language level that keeps me invested and circling and interested in parsing and interpreting the play whereas here as soren said you don't just like tell in the first lines exactly what's going to happen and then march towards that ending and then do it in like modern stories that's just like not how they go <laughs> yeah for sure bouncing off something friedrich said i'm interested in the place that this play has in a sort of philosophical history of alcohol and its benefits to humankind and also its drawbacks to humankind. You know, Herodotus tells this story, whether it's true or not, obviously you, you can never tell with Herodotus, probably at least a little bit embellished, but he tells this story about the Persians and how under Xerxes, the Persians would always make a decision twice. They would they would talk about something when they were sober, and they would talk about it again when they were drunk. Or if they talked about it when they were drunk the first time, then they would come back and talk about it sober. And before they made any decision, they would always do it both ways. And regardless of whether that's a true story or not, I think it's a very interesting story for thinking about the role that alcohol plays in philosophy. And, and this, this play is playing that up. And even somebody as sort of we think of as serious and sober-minded as Thomas Aquinas, right, talks a lot about alcohol. And he says, you know, you can drink to the point of cheerfulness is his recommendation, right, about wine. It plays a part. It's, it, it has this dual history of being this aid to humans and then also this 
very dangerous thing for humans. And that's and that's part of what's going on with Dionysus himself, right? He is almost the physical embodiment of wine as somebody who can bring great pleasure and great relief to humans and then also great suffering. I think that makes me understand the play a little bit more on the, the terms I keep coming back to. Maybe they're the Aristotelian or post-Aristotelian terms. Pentheus can't get to that Bacchic level of ex-stasis, right? He can't get out of his own point of view. Maybe that's the Aquintian cheerfulness level of drinking. And you know, he doesn't listen to Tiresias, right? So in a Greek tragedy, that's what makes it a tragedy, you know? You don't listen <laughs> yeah, exactly. to Tiresias yeah. and you are screwed. And he can't, you know, get out of his own viewpoint just enough. And I think that's my way, I think, of understanding the the god of wine in a, in a benevolent way. This sense of cheer, this sense of playfulness, you put aside your, you know, self-seriousness for a moment. You look at a different point of view. You laugh at yourself. Pentheus can't get there. And he remains sort of hard-hearted. And that, that kind of links him to like a Creon for me. The ruler unable to see beyond their the scales on their eyes from their power. I think that's a great point, Carl, especially what you noted about his inability to escape from his own sort of self-seriousness. Obviously, by the end of the play, he's, we can put this in quotes, drunk. He's gone yes, mad. Exactly. But he skipped all the stages in between, right? He's he's gone from sober, stone cold sober to just like passed out on the floor. He hasn't gone through that cheerfulness, which is where ideally he would be. And you see that with other characters. You see at the beginning, so Cadmus, who's the used to be the king of Thebes. He stepped down. He's Pentheus and Dionysus, his grandfather. He stepped down and given the throne to Pentheus. He and Tiresias, the old blind prophet, are going out to worship Dionysus. And they're they're looking a little bit ridiculous, right? Yep. They've got their, they're dressed up. They've got their laurel wreaths everywhere. And they're like, yeah, we're going to go party with Dionysus. And and they're at that point of cheerfulness, right? They, they've accepted the gods' reign. They're ready to go hang out, but they're not out of control. They're loosened. They're ready to dance a little bit, but they've not gone absolutely wild i mean what's striking to me about cadmus as a ruler is that he's willing to look ridiculous and it's fun maybe it's not fun but it's uh, it could be fun but they understand like this is something we do because there was a pact made and so yeah we'll dress up like this it's a little silly but we're gonna do it to worship the gods we're gonna get our thyrsus out and we're gonna pound it on the ground and that's fine and then pentheus comes in and he's too uptight and he tells them, I don't care about this god because, I mean, really, Tiresias, the only reason you care about this god is because it's going to earn you more money from your divinations and your soothsaying. Like Soren was saying, he doesn't, by the time he is mad, maddened by Dionysus and dressed like a maenad and out among them, he's skipped past that early, early, early stage that a sort of benevolent ruler could occupy where yeah, you're okay with being made fun of. It reminds me a little bit of the wonderful part in the Old Testament where David is, is described as dancing before the Lord. And then everybody's like, what are you like, what are you doing? I think it's his wife is like, what are you doing? You're such an embarrassment. <laughs> so you're so you're so cringe right now, David. He's like, I don't care, I'm just gonna dance. This is what this is what Katniss and Tiresias are doing, right? They're they're embracing a little bit of ridiculousness, and that I think points to one of the other dyads in this book, because or this play, because this is a play of dyads, right? And I think part of what you're pointing up. Here, Friedrich, is this split between old and young. There's a sense that the old are flexible, maybe, in a way that the young are not, which is maybe a little bit different than we tend to think about it. We tend to think about old people as being very set in their ways, maybe, right? Mm -hmm. When I was young, this is the way we did things. But actually, looked at a certain way, at least, there's a sense in which the, the young are very inflexible, and the, the older may be a little bit more pragmatic in the way that they do things. 
and, and willing to bend. And this also goes, you know, to the heart, I think, of some of the political ideas in the play, which are centered around the city versus the wilderness and order versus chaos. Pentheus is driven, I think, by a pretty understandable desire to keep order in his city. He is the king of the city. He's got to be in charge of making sure things don't just go nuts. And when you have women out in the wilderness, right, ripping things apart, that's bad for public morale, especially when they're attacking your own soldiers and things like that. And so he's driven by that desire to keep order, but he's so set in his idea of what order is, which is a sort of perfect linear obedience that he he doesn't have the political flexibility to absorb deviance at all and so what ends up happening is he ends up being broken on that yeah i like that theory there has to be some kind of freudian or social sublimation that takes place from the this, this, the is, this is charles the taylor's discussion of of, car- of carnival right in the middle ages that release valve that that ability to transcend the political order from even for a moment and then come back down that's a thing that's not there in contemporary life, I would say, at least in the U.S. Imagine a day like a modern boxing day or whatever where the president is, you know, in tatters and in the gutter of the nation or something, mocked by all, even their most fervent supporters. I think we've kind of lost that uh, ability to not be serious about about the the halls of power every day. It's striking that when we re- imagine social release, even in our media, we think about the purge, right? Where it's like this, it has to be this absolute violence, right? This absolute lawlessness that ends in destruction. And we can't think about it in terms of, I, li- I like what you said there, Carl, as a sort of a mockery, a self-mockery. Yeah, the purge is not corybantic, right? Even though they kind of go together with, you know, heaps and heaps of violence. The purge is like, raw power ultimate Mm. power contests as opposed Mm. to like hierarchy inversion and a carnival i I like what you were saying soren about the city versus the wilderness as uh entirely distinct but also codependent or at least one way dependent states that uh when the main ads are out uh among the fields they're reported to like touch their thyrsus to various things and milk and honey and things spring out of them wilderness is the source of all that they eat and drink dionysus is one half of that that supply and pentheus is too invested in his polity as a place of order to the point that he says it is intolerable if we are to let women treat us in this manner to attack us to defeat us that his order is not only controlling wilderness and keeping out the riffraff or something like that but it's a familial order that it's about a man giving directives to his wife and children and it's telling that the main ads when they leave abandon their infants right and when this play comes to a head it's a mother killing a son and destroying patrilineal order that pentheus has been trying to protect i guess now i keep folding it more and more into the aristotelian form where that what you just said friedrich reminds me of like oedipus again your sowing your own deceit when you aren't being pious it's better to be unthinkingly pious than thinkingly impious. I think that's kind of one of the things that's hard to wrestle with with for a modern, where it's, you know, it's better to have a enlightened subjectivity or a critical subjectivity in a kind of Kantian sense than a uncritical, holy fool-ish persona. And this is taking us back before that to say like, no, this kind of piety is one where if you're right, it doesn't matter if it's for the right reasons or not. You're You're in line, you're in the order, and you're safe. And those who attempt to go beyond it are not safe. And what Soren was saying about the like the city in the wilderness 
you know, you could give a kind of eco-critical reading of it. Eventually, the wilderness will take you over, you know, in like a Shellian, Ozymandias kind of way, right? Whatever you build will fall. So in that sense, you're better off being pious, kind of accepting that fate. I have a question. Greek tragedy and Greek theater in general is seen as a sort of collective activity, right, that you participate in as a viewer. I remember reading Jonathan Shea's Achilles in Vietnam, which is about combat trauma in Homer and uh, and then in Vietnam as well. And he talks about the sort of cathartic quality of these plays for people who are often at war or were really close to war. And I was wondering, you know, this is a play that has really a, a really small amount of characters and they are mostly male characters with one exception. And the people in the city who are its rulers are male and then we have this mostly offstage mass, plus the chorus of women who are a collective, who worship Dionysus and follow him as a group. And I was wondering what kind of tensions are present in this play between this sense of being able to lose yourself in like a Dionysian collective where your individuality is not important or your ego is not important. Because Pentheus is a very egoistic person, right? Versus being able to just being lost in a, in a group. Yeah, and that's a great thought, Friedrich, especially since... Just as a historical note here, if I'm remembering correctly, the sort of pride of place in the Greek theater was given over to this group of young men called Ephebes, who are sort of on the verge of manhood. They'd be, you know, 16 to 18, something like that, right? And they're given the sort of best seats in the house to kind of come in because there's an element of this that is uh, is about, basically explicitly about character formation for people who are going to be taking over the city. And so it's worth thinking about in a play like the Bacchae, what exactly are they being taught? Yeah. <laughs> um, what's the lesson they're <laughs> supposed to be gleaning from this? I think there's one... There's one reading of it, kind of goes along with what Carl's been emphasizing, which is about it's better to be pious than, than impious. But there's also another sense in which I think Euripides is interested in questioning the values that are on display here, not just from Pentheus, but also from Dionysus as well. Because it's not like Dionysus is a hero in this play, certainly. I don't know to what extent, you know, Euripides would want, or, or the, the leaders of Athens would want these young men to lose themselves in the sense of the collective versus maintaining that individuality. It's, it's a really interesting and fraught question in this play. Well, maybe we could approach it by talking about Dionysus, because we haven't talked about Dionysus as a character yet. He's someone who obviously has an ego as a god, um, but who also loses himself in these roles. And who, by the way, is an ephebe as he's portrayed in the play. Enter Dionysus, this is the from the very beginning. He is of soft, even effeminate appearance. His face is beardless, and that's the key line. So he, he's an ephebe, he's beardless. That's sort of the defining characteristic of, it's like Britney Spears, not a girl, not yet a woman, right? This is what the Ephebes, <laughs> like they're in this in-between stage. And Dionysus is, men. he's portrayed, <laughs> boys to men, exactly. <laughs> he's portrayed as an Ephebe. And and I, I believe, Pentheus, you're supposed to, uh, yeah, like, this is where he's introduced. Like Dionysus, he is beardless. Yeah. So they are both in this category that you're supposed to be identifying with as sort of the main audience of the Greek play. That's interesting if it's about young Two young men representing Apollonian and Dionysian cultures. Nietzsche maybe was onto something with this. But Dionysus has the upper hand always. And Dionysus is invested in like the theater of his trickery and uh, into tricking um, Pentheus into thinking that he's tying him up when he's in fact trying to like capture and tie up a bull or into attacking a phantom of himself 
that is in fact just nothing it's a shade and then getting him dressed up in a costume to go meet the main ants or spy on them and then he's like lifted up to this great height by dionysus in a tree and pentheus is now placed in like the ultimate box at the opera or something there's just a lot of theatrical stuff going on here that seems self-reflexive and again that's sort of one of the meta elements of this play that really interests me is that Dionysus is the god of the theater, among all the other things that we've listed. He's the god, and, and literally the tragedies are put on in his honor. And of course, going back to Nietzsche, right, he talks a lot about the development out of music, the, you know, the hymns in honor to Dionysus of tragedy itself. And so there's a, there's a sort of an appropriateness about it, but it's also kind of weird. Like you're putting on a play about the god of theater that in many ways is a play that is critical of him and so it is a sort of piece of theatrical commentary i think in some ways and almost i I actually hadn't thought of this before friedrich but i think it's an an interesting point this is almost like a play within a play the way that he is manipulating pentheus is very theatrical can we shift and talk about the religious elements of this play because i'm very fascinated in the the way that the bakai is presenting religious belief from several angles and i want to go to a couple parts at the beginning again with cadmus and tiresias who are super fascinating figures to me in the play even though they don't represent the main division of the play but cadmus and tiresias have some interesting ideas about why it is exactly that they're going out to worship dionysus so i'm just going to read a couple of parts from tiresias they're in conversation with pentheus trying to convince him to come with them and worship the God. This is what Tiresias says. We do not trifle with divinity. No, we are the heirs of customs and traditions, hallowed by age and handed down to us by our fathers. No quibbling logic can topple them, whatever subtleties this clever age invents. My question about this is, this is a a fascinating claim to me because it's not actually true. He's saying we are the heirs of customs and traditions hallowed by age and handed down to us by our fathers. But that is literally impossible in the case of Dionysus in the timeline of this play. Dionysus is like 20 years old. Tiresias is like 80. How can he be the heir of customs and traditions that have been handed down? He says, we don't trifle with divinity. And then a little bit later, this is, I think, a super fascinating part to me. He's trying to explain, Pentheus mocks him because he says, oh, people say Dionysus was sewn into the thigh of Zeus, and that's ridiculous. And he's trying to defend this idea, and he says this, You sneer, do you, at that story that Dionysus was sewed into the thigh of Zeus? Let me teach you what that really means. When Zeus rescued from the thunderbolt his infant son, he brought him to Olympus. Hera, however, plotted at heart to hurl the child from heaven. Like the god he is, Zeus countered her. Breaking off a tiny fragment of that ether which surrounds the world, he molded from it a dummy Dionysus. This he showed to Hera, but with time men garbled the word and said that Dionysus had been sewed into the thigh of Zeus. This was their story, whereas in fact Zeus showed the dummy to Hera and gave it as a hostage for his son. Now, I don't know what that looks like in the Greek. I was going to say, that's got to be some... Greek. It's got to be some sort of, but I think it's trying to capture something of what's going on in the, actually going on in in the Greek itself, some sort of pun that's being used there. So they do like puns a lot Mm -hmm. in Greek tragedy. But, But what's fascinating to me about that is that Tiresias comes across as sort of like this 19th century German, like biblical critic, critical scholar. He's saying like, no, 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 you don't understand, right? This isn't ridiculous sewed into the to the thigh of Zeus. That's ridiculous. What's actually going on is like there's this dummy that was made and it was showed to Hera. He's in, engaging in this interpretive exegesis in defense of his beliefs 
at the same time that he is sort of forwarding this idea that no quibbling logic can shake his belief. And so I wonder what exactly Tiresias's religious convictions are supposed to be in this play. And Cadmus later also says explicitly to Pentheus, he says, you know what, even if this isn't real, it's good for us because that means your aunt was impregnated. You know, we can pretend like she was impregnated by a god, right? It's better than saying, you know, she was a whore and she got knocked up right, by a random dude. Is this real religious belief that's being portrayed? Is it this sort of charlatanism as Pentheus seems to suggest? Or, I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, I like the uh, the German biblical critical reference, obviously. I'm drawn to the idea that if we're talking about 19th century biblical critics, we can think about the theory that the word for God is actually emerging etymologically from the word for sky or something, and that it's all actually naturalistic, and, and that anything we're worshiping is just, a, a, a as Max Mueller said, a disease of language, that something along the way was misunderstood or transformed and now we worship that and Tiresias is saying it doesn't matter how we got to this point we're at this point and that to me is interesting when he in my translation he says we do not chop logic with divinity and I like that because he's sort of just saying this is obviously you're right that they haven't handed this down from their forefathers because Dionysus is is a baby but he recognizes if we don't do this then it's going to be bad for Thebes it's going to be bad for all of us and so yeah what is what is the nature of the belief there I don't know it's it seems to go back to what Carl was questioning with this bit play which was the determinism of it that there's this thing that's going to happen and how we got here doesn't matter because it's going to happen and that can be bleak I think there's maybe more to it than that that's the place I'm at right now it's quite removed from the way I would try to understand it or it in a, a modern context so I think part of what Friedrich is saying is yeah it's you know it's like I flipped a coin and it's behind my back and I've always known that it's going to be heads and then when it is heads I can say you know I was right but if it's not then then it's a different play or something what Soren was saying reminded me of a severed head by Iris Murdoch which is a book we talked about earlier in the podcast go back and listen to episode six one of my favorites in that novel, we were talking about Honor Klein as someone representing an earlier and more barbaric in some ways sense of honor or justice or valuing of ethics or whatever. And multiple times throughout that book, she's associated with the dark gods. And I feel like this world is the world of those gods. I feel like part of what's happening in this play is people like Tiresias and Cadmus recognizing the scariness of something like whatever Honor Klein represents, whatever Dionysus is bringing to this world, and someone like Pentheus who resists it, knowing full well, well, not for him, but we as, as readers knowing or viewers knowing full well that if he resists it, it's going to be bad for him, that we're in a different ethical world. And part of what's interesting about this play is trying to trying to live in it i guess yeah I'm, I'm trying to do that too even though i keep going back to my aristotelian parsing of it i want to get a a pre-aristotelian sense of what a greek audience would find exciting or not cathartic because that's another aristotelian category but the, the payoff or, or what exactly the point of seeing this would be and i think it might be charles taylor's secular secular age where he he talks about um Greek religion is kind of so afar from us because we're like rooted in this epistemic frame that is more evidence and test based. So I think part of that is, you know, we're before that frame in this play. 
But then another part of it too is that the, I think, and I think the bridge for me is might be the, the early modern sort of difference between Hobbes and Machiavelli, where what is the sort of prime driver of social interactions and social chaos or social cohesion? Is it eros and desire or is it virtue? To me, it seems like it has to be this kind of Greek pre-modern elevated sense of eros that's kind of hard for us moderns to really tap back into it's not a rational science-based evidence-based sense of testing things out and then being pleased by them you're drinking the wine you have no idea what the alcohol content is there's no frame for these kinds of activities it, oh, there's a wildness you know a physical wildness in the forest and also you're entering a corybantic state a frame of mind that is pure desire oriented or there's no even frame of virtue orientation for you and so that's kind of what i'm trying to wrap my head around these are all really good thoughts and to pick up on something friedrich that you were saying before the connection to honor klein what's really interesting to me about particularly the chorus who comes up in you know in these weird parts is their emphasis on honor as bound up in what's going on with the worship of Dionysus and so I want to read another part another one of my favorite parts of the play that I have been wrestling with for years and I still have no idea what to make of it but I think it's fascinating so starting around line 880 this is what the chorus says slow but unmistakable the might of the gods moves on it punishes that man infatuate of soul and hardened in his pride, who disregards the gods. The gods are crafty. They lie in ambush a long step of time to hunt the unholy. Beyond the old beliefs, no thought, no act shall go. Small, small is the cost to believe in this. Whatever is God is strong. Whatever long time has sanctioned, that is a law forever. The law tradition makes is the law of nature. What is wisdom? What gift of the gods is held in honor like this? To hold your hand victorious over the heads of those you hate. Honor is precious forever. I don't know, there's probably some differences in translation here, and I'd be interested to hear how your translations render this, but I've always been fascinated by, in particular, this idea. Whatever is God is strong. Whatever long time has sanctioned, that is a law forever. The law tradition makes is the law of nature. I'm fascinated by that because it almost feels like a like a vector theory of tradition. We want to sort of think about, okay, law of nature, it, it's like a line. It just has existed forever and it goes on forever in both directions. But this is almost more like a vector. There's a starting point to this, but from that starting point forward, there's no turning back. The law tradition makes is the law of nature. How do you make any sense of that in our modern reckoning with it? It doesn't make any sense, but it, it, it somehow makes sense here. Whatever long time has sanctioned, that is a law forever. There's some maybe undiscoverable prehistoric point at which these things get enshrined in law. And from that point forward, to wrestle with them is to enter into madness highlighting a difference for us between religion of revelation that's something that's brought about by some sort of inspired writing or inspired rec record of events that's now in a text that we can point to and say well this is the thing we follow and the guidelines whatever that we adhere to because that's what our belief system 
maintains. Whereas here it's saying, well, whatever has existed a long time is what we follow because that's the way it is. Like you're saying, we're not being given a world historical event that we're then going to interpret and learn from where look it's almost more empirical like you're looking around you and observing everything and saying oh that's the way it is well that must be what the gods want because there's no like wrestling against like nature red and tooth and claw it's sort of accepting that and saying well if that's what's still going on that must be what these cruel gods want whatever is god is strong yeah i wish here I, there actually was the greek because then i could maybe be on points but there's the there's the greek distinction, one of the earliest philosophical squabbles between physis and nomos, nature and the law, out of which, you know, modern society gets natural law, right? And then we sort of proceed from there to our sense of what the law is or where it comes from. In the American tradition, it's self-evident. Before then, it's this sort of, do things follow the the legal decree or the, the natural way? And what Soren read for us is way different in my translation, so much so that I could barely even follow would you read would you read your translation what is noble is precious that ever holds true the power of the gods is slow to move but surely nonetheless it corrects those men who worship senselessness and in their mad folly do not magnify the gods who cover with elaborate devices the unhastening foot of time as they hunt down the man without religion for in thought and behavior one should never go beyond traditional ways that's nomos i would say it costs little to regard these things as having power colon whatever it is that comes from god and what has always been the tradition established by nature and long time so i think he might be trying to like meld the two right there it seems to me like there's a bit of nomos and a bit of physis in there it seems perhaps like euripides is trying to go hegel and like synthesize this distinction and get us beyond nomos and physis and and connect them in and maybe that's why this is a weird like dionysus before he is old enough to be a tradition is respected because he is a god and also a sort of divine physis or something these might be crazy ideas and someone who knows greek might think they're totally wrong (laughs) No, that, that's really, I think that's really fascinating, Carl. So my my running theory about this has always been, take this for what it's worth, that part of what Tiresias is talking about at the beginning and what the chorus is talking about here is that there is a stance toward life that will allow you to recognize divinity when it comes to you. And it has to do with this openness. And that's what Pentheus is missing. He's a closed person, and so he doesn't have the ability to enter into that tradition because tradition, in this sense, is maybe more fluid than we sometimes think about it. It's not about necessarily every single rule being kept exactly the same way. It's about a style of recognition and a style of entering into reality. And I think that's part of what's going on here is Tiresias can do this because he has the correct stance toward life and Pentheus can't. There's another useful distinction there between esoteric and exoteric religion. I guess you could call both of them a tradition, right? Is kind of what Soren is saying. Esoteric is just found by those who have come into touch with it who've reckoned with it or had an experience of divinity that's opposed to exoteric which is handed down from one to the next and there's a clear lineage you know all the way back to 
Paul or Muhammad or whoever, right? Those differences, perhaps what you're saying is it's an esoteric tradition that he's trying to bring up. I mean, I think we should remember too that Tiresias is the blind seer of great fame we know from many plays. At one point when Dionysus has finally started the the trap and deluded Pentheus and got him into women's clothing and is bringing him to the main ads, he tells him, now you see what you should see. There's something about like the proper way of seeing is this intoxicated and strange way of seeing the world. Soren was talking about how there's a sort of variety of religious reality and i think that tiresias is someone who sees that obviously as you've mentioned and dionysus is inviting pentheus into seeing that against his will without him knowing he earlier tells a sober pentheus you do not know what your life is or what you do or who you are and i feel like that's part of the what drives the play for me as a reader that there's a god a new god maybe um, but a god nonetheless who is telling this very cocksure person like you don't know anything about your reality really in the same way honor klein is in, in a severed head by iris murdoch is saying to martin you don't really know your reality you have to be invited into a little bit of intoxication and a little bit of inspiration in some way to interpret the world beyond just these rocks and stones that we use to build our city it's crazy you say that Friedrich, because you could have said that that exact last line about the tiresias descending episode at the end of our last podcast where we're talking about Bron Helmstrom on Trouble on Triton. So we're going all the way into the past and all the way into the future and maybe nothing has changed. I think I just blew my own mind. I want to build on what you were saying, Friedrich. You brought up the end of this quote that I actually want to talk about the beginning of um, from Pentheus. You you talked about Dionysus's response. Mm. And um, I'm thinking about this in regards to what Carl just said about esoteric and exoteric religion, and then what you were saying, Friedrich, also about the ability to see correctly. There's this this wonderful part. So this is from the part where Pentheus is all dressed up and ready to go out into the forest. So he has this strange vision. This is what Pentheus says. I seem to see two suns blazing in the heavens, and now two Thebes, two cities, and each with seven gates, and you... You are a bull who walks before me there. Horns have sprouted from your head. Have you always been a beast? But now I see a bull. And then Dionysus says, who is the bull god also. He's got many jobs. It is the god you see. Though hostile formerly, formerly, he now declares a truce and goes with us. You see what you could not when you were blind. And what that brings to mind to me is a quote that I come back to endlessly from William Blake in a letter to a friend, right, where he says, Pray God us keep from single vision and Newton's sleep. And Dionysus has helped Pentheus enter into double vision. And there's sort of a physical, right, maybe a physical reference to drunkenness here, right? Because this is sort of the idea, right? When you get drunk, you start seeing multiple things, right? Your vision blurs. But it is also, it is also the insight of esoteric religion. He's finally able to see the God because he sees doubly. Was the ending where Pentheus goes out the second time? Is he now like had a change of heart and he's earnestly following the Bacchic ways? Or is his motive ulterior in trying to get back at Dionysus in the guard's clothes or whatever that he's like been talking with? Because the way I read it was like he's just trying to get back at him. So he hasn't really, he hasn't learned anything yet. 
when Dionysus keeps telling him these things, he's just talking at a brick wall. He's like, I'm telling you the truth and you are not changing at all. So I'm going to go tell you to do this and now you're going to die because like, I'm a god, I do what I want. This is a great question, Carl. I would tend to agree with you, I think. But I also think it doesn't really, in some ways it doesn't matter because he's being overpowered. Like he certainly has his own ulterior motives even by the end. And I think part of that is there's a sort of riff on his hypocrisy Right, he's brought down by his sort of prurient sexual interest in what's going on out there, even though he he is supposed to be the upholder of these you know, kind of normal, <laughs> within the bounds sexuality as the king of the city. So I think I think there's the play on that, but then I also think there's this sense of the play on him almost being given the gift of prophecy when he doesn't want it, which again reminds makes me think about certain figures in the Old Testament, like Balaam or, or even maybe Jonah, right, who, who want to refuse the prophetic gift and are not really able to refuse it. So, so I think there's an interesting tension there. He's given this gift even though he doesn't really want it. It's being forced on him. And that, in this case, I think that destroys him. And that's part of I mean, maybe Dionysus' plan is because he can't accept it willingly into himself. It ends up destroying him. So on that cheery, wine-sopped note, we're going to end this for tonight. Just a little preview, give you a little teaser. Um, If you sign up on our Patreon, you'll have access to a bonus episode. We're going to be talking about a movie that may or may not be in the tradition of Greek tragedy, um, which is the 2017 film The Killing of a Sacred Deer by Yorgos Lanthimos, and we're going to think about the ways in which it does and does not line up with Greek tragedy, among other things. We're going to talk about fate and character and and things like that. It'll be a good discussion. Some of us like this movie a lot. Some of us hate this movie, so it'll it'll be lively, to say the least. So if you want access to that, do go sign up for our Patreon. One more time, that's patreon.com slash the readers Karamazov for as little as $5 a month. This wonderful content can be yours. That'll do it for tonight for this episode. So um, until next time, we'll say, play us out, cat keyboard. Is the modern Greek tragedy par excellence the Space Madness episode of Ren and Stimpy, where he's tasked with not pushing the button? <laughs> that could well be. Uh, I think you have something there. You could put that one in the LA Review of Books. <laughs> Ouch.